You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, the Rafa border crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt has opened to let a limited number of people through. We'll get the details. China launched a surprise population survey today as the birth rate there continues to fall. The US has announced sanctions on the Myanmar oil company, but is this too little too late to change the behaviour of a repressive regime? And... McDonald's propose le service à table pour se retrouver ensemble à table. The French say they reject fast food, but the popularity of McDonald's in the country of gastronomes might suggest otherwise. All that right here on the briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Egypt has opened the Rafa crossing to the Gaza Strip today for the first time since the Israel-Hamas war began on October the 7th. Some people have already been allowed to leave. Well, Ruth Michelson is a journalist specialising in the Middle East and she's just returned to Istanbul from Israel and was previously based in Egypt. Ruth, many thanks for talking to us on the briefing. Who has been allowed to cross at Rafa? So what we've seen so far is that... Um, um, an estimated 40 ambulances, this is according to the Egyptian broadcaster Al-Kahra News, um, were able to cross um, from Gaza um, into Egypt to carry an estimated, I believe that the number is between 81 and 88 wounded people, seriously wounded people, for twe- for treatment in uh, northern Sinai. There's also, uh, there's a list that has been circulating that was published last night by the Border Crossing Authority um, that named uh, aid workers, uh, people with dual nationality, um, and other people that might be uh, um, allowed to cross today. It's not clear how many of those people. There's an estimated 500 people um, that are meant to be allowed to cross uh, via Rafa um, either today or in the coming days. And what's unclear is who has been allowed to cross other than the wounded so far and whether how long the crossing will remain open and whether others, particularly people from um, the UK and, and the US who are not Uh, listed in the list that was circulating, whether they will be allowed to cross um, in the coming days. And in terms of the people in the ambulances, the wounded people, are they Palestinians and whereabouts are they going to be treated? Those are wounded Palestinians, and um, the uh, we understand that the Egyptians have prepared a field hospital um, in northern Sinai in Sheikh uh, in Sheikh Zuid. Um, this is according to uh, Reuters, um, and so the treatment will be taking place there. Though uh, there are hospitals in Arish in northern Sinai where they're um, also expected to receive more people if uh, more ambulances are permitted to cross. Mm. And do we know where the other people, the dual nationals? Will- go? I think that depends on the dual nationals themselves. There will be some people who will want to stay in Egypt and see if they can get family members across. There will be others who will want to go elsewhere. And who's organised this? So being able to cross or opening the crossing is uh, happens at the behest of the Egyptian authorities 
with cooperation from the Israelis. But um, we've seen reporting that this entire mediation um, around limited evacuations has come from the Qataris. Um, so they have separate to the other negotiations that have been happening around uh, the estimated uh, 229 people, I believe, who are held hostage um, in uh, Israeli nationals or dual nationals who are held hostage. The Qataris have also mediated this agreement between uh, the Egyptian authorities, between the Israelis and between Hamas, which governs the Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip, in coordination with the United States to allow these uh, what they have termed limited evacuations from the Gaza Strip. And do we have any ideas about the conditions around Rafa? I mean, we know that previously there had been huge crowds trying to, cr to, to cross there, also that it had had a bit of a, an air battering. Absolutely. I mean, um, we know that there are dozens of people who have gathered there trying to cross and there have been people who have gathered there at any point that there has been a discussion that the, the border crossing might open up. People understandably are, there are some people who are desperate to leave. Um, there are still Israeli airstrikes on the southern part of the Gaza Strip where Israeli authorities have told Palestinians to flee to, although there are still airstrikes in those areas. And as you point out, the, there have been airstrikes on uh, the Rafa border crossing uh, that took place last month. Um, those actually hit the Egyptian part of the crossing. Um, so, you know, at the moment there are people who have gathered there, whether or not their names are on the list, desperate to be able to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, Ruth, you were in Israel last week. I wonder if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about the atmosphere there and how supportive ordinary Israelis are of their right-wing government who are taking this very extreme action. I mean, I think it's probably important to talk about how divided Israeli society is um, in terms of their support for this uh, support for Benjamin Netanyahu and his particularly, as you say, extreme right coalition. People, the discussion around this really um, comes into play when people talk about what needs to be done for those who are held hostage in Gaza, Gaza whether there should be negotiation um, as the hostages or some of the hostages' families have said, or whether like some other hostages' families have said that um, the priority should be um, strikes that the Israeli government says target Hamas. We are seeing disproportionate um, civilian casualties um, at the same time as those strikes. And there are some people in Israel that have said, you know, the priority um, should be targeting Hamas rather than thinking about the fate of the hostages. And so, as I say, the, the situation is, is deeply, deeply divided. And how did you find the atmosphere? Uh, I mean, in terms of the atmosphere, it's it's uh, it's quite difficult to put into words, really. Um, I mean, I think that this is this is a society that is is grieving that a terrible attack that has happened, and also one that is struggling to come to terms with uh, the situation that's now that's now unfolding. There's a lot of, I think, concern and fear about um, a widening 
uh, widening war. Um, and at the same time, I think that we should all be paying attention, for example, to what's happening in the West Bank, that um, there has been a huge uptick um, in violence um, in, in terms of what's happening there. Um, and that these things mean that, unfortunately, what is happening is not ending anytime soon. Ruth, thank you very much indeed. That was Ruth Michelson in Istanbul. Now, here's Emma Sell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Bolivia has cut diplomatic ties with Israel over its war with Hamas. The deputy foreign minister in Bolivia's left-wing government condemned what he called the disproportionate Israeli military offensive in the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, Chile and Colombia have recalled their ambassadors to Tel Aviv. Gaza has been plunged into a second communications blackout, the Palestinian territory's largest telecoms provider has said. It comes after Israeli airstrikes hit a refugee camp in Gaza, killing at least 50 people. Israel says a Hamas commander was among the fatalities. And Donald Trump's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., will testify in a civil fraud trial involving the former president on Wednesday. New York's attorney general accuses Trump of falsely inflating the values of his properties to secure favorable loans. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Emma. China conducts a once-in-a-decade census. The last time this happened was in November 2020, and that showed the population grew at the slowest pace since the first modern survey in the 1950s. Now, in a surprise move, another census was launched today. The authorities are polling 1.4 million people in a survey on population changes amidst a push to incentivise people to have more children. Well, Isabel Hilton is a visiting professor at King's College London's Lau Institute and joins me now. Isabel, good to have you back on the show. How unexpected is this survey today? Well, it is an unusual move, but I think it is um, a symptom of something that we've been pretty well aware of, which is the anxiety of the party and the government about the young generation's reluctance to listen to the party instruction to have more children. You know, China's population peaked 10 years earlier than expected. And despite the relaxation of the one child policy in 2016 and then, you know, further encouragement, there's no sign that uh, people are willing to listen to the party on this particular matter. So why are birth rates falling? Birth rates are falling partly as a result of a long-standing government policy of, of you know, limiting, uh, limiting childbearing to one child per couple. And that lasted 20 years. That produced a generation of children who had uh, no brothers, no sisters, no cousins. You know, they, it destroyed the notion of the big family as an asset in China uh, on the cultural front. And then there were socioeconomic factors. So if you are a peasant, uh, as China's population largely was when all this began, working in the fields, then children are an asset because you need you need physical labor. But if you move to the city, as millions have, um, then you're fighting for uh, schooling, you're fighting for accommodation, you're, you, know, you, you need two wages. Children then become a financial burden. So you certainly, even if you have one, you certainly don't want more than one because you can't afford it. Mm. And thirdly, I think, you know, the young women of China are much more uh, attuned to being in the workplace, much less under the thumb of their mothers-in-law, as they were traditionally, and they're making their own minds up. And they're not really going to listen to what they see as a bunch of old men who have for 30 years children, they can't have children, now shouting at them to do it to the party. Mm. And I wonder if the one-child policy also resulted in a gender imbalance. 
It did. Um, it, it resulted in a gender imbalance because there was selective abortion and selective adoption. Because if you're only going to have one child in a traditional Asian culture, as China still is, you want it to be a boy. Because if it's a girl, she marries out and you don't have anyone to look after you in your old age. So there are a whole selection of factors here which are partly to do with the relatively underdeveloped um, social security system, a lack of security for pensioners, you know, the need for family to supplement what the state will do. And on top of that right now, you know, a lot of economic uncertainty. So all of these factors are working against the party's desire to see the population decline halted. Mm. Now, the president, Xi Jinping, said this week that women have a critical role and must establish a new trend of family. I wonder what that means and what's being done, other than words, to incentivize people to have more children. Well, there, there are a lot of words, and I think that we're, we're kind of reaching the point where, where I would expect to see the party being a little more coercive. I mean, it started with um, a message going out to Communist Party members saying, you know, basically have a child for the party. Um, there is a lot of discussion about support, about financial support, for example, but a lot of it still trends to the let's re-educate the young women. And... You know, I think that younger generations in China have had a very, very different experience from the people who are in charge of China. And I think there's a cultural gap there, which the party is finding very hard to bridge. So, you know, there have been coercive moves, for example, against a relatively small and, and extremely peaceful feminist movement. If you look at the operational arm of the party, it's almost entirely male. There are no women in the Politburo at the moment. So, you know, it, this is a, a very male culture, and I think that there is a lot of resistance a couple of generations down among the young women to the, to the exhortations of, mm. this, of this group. What does the shrinking population then mean for the future of China? Well, it, it's, and the problem is that it's the most rapidly aging population in the world. So, you know, China's big demographic dividend, which was one of the very important factors in industrial development, uh, is exhausted. You know, uh, in fact, India now has more people. So there's a sort of psychological blow, if you like, to China. But there's also, you know, the blow... There's also the complication that uh, other societies have. You know, a lot of European societies are aging, but they compensate for that by immigration. China doesn't really do immigration in that sense or hasn't done immigration. You know, it's very difficult, even if people want to, to immigrate to China. So it's not clear where the compensation, the economic compensation of it, you know, a young uh, population is going to come from. Um, and it's also hitting at a moment when nobody really wants to add to a social security burden because provincial and local governments are suffering from the slow motion property collapse. Uh, the um, COVID measures hit the economy hard. So central government isn't keen to pick up the, uh, the burden. So there are a lot of claims at the moment on the state and it's not at all obvious how they're going to be met. And all of this plays into... Uh, the, the, the lack of you know, young workers, the lack of young, cheap labour. Isabel, thank you very much indeed. That is China expert Isabel Hilton. And this is The Briefing on Monocle Radio.
Since the 2021 military coup and a deadly crackdown that gave rise to a nationwide resistance movement, Myanmar has been in crisis. The military has been accused by rights groups of committing atrocities against civilians in its efforts to crush the resistance. The junta says it's fighting terrorists and has ignored international calls to cease hostilities. Now the US has, for- has imposed a form of sanctions on Myanmar oil and gas enterprises, but stopped short of imposing full blocking sanctions on the ruling junta's main source of foreign revenue. Rebecca Tan is Southeast Asia Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. She joins me now from Singapore. Rebecca, welcome to the briefing. What exactly are the measures imposed by Washington? So this today that we're seeing today is a series of sanctions on, like you said, uh, the Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, which is uh, the junta's primary source of revenue. Um, And so the sanctions that have been released today, they're, they're a list of names that the, the U.S. government has effectively sanctioned. But like you said, they stop short of going all the way. They stop short of kicking it out of the U.S. banking system and, and freezing all of its American assets. Um, and so while a lot of different activist groups and um, resistance forces are extremely happy about this, you know, long awaited move, they say, you know, the Washington and, and the U.S. really needs to go further, given the scale of atrocities that we've seen uh, over the past two years. And, and so why did they stop at that point? Why didn't they, they push for more sanctions? So this is, you know, hard to say that the push for sanctions on MOG has, you know, been long running, basically since the junta seized uh, control uh, over over the country, there, there there has been this request, and it's escalated this year because we've seen the scale of airstrikes really surge across the country, and so we're seeing airstrikes strike, you know, civilian camps, refugee camps. We've seen we've seen them strike hospitals. Uh, we've seen them strike schools, um, and there's been a big push among rights activists to sanction MOG because, in part, it will cut off uh, the junta's ability to conduct these airstrikes. On the side of DC, they've said that, you know, they haven't wanted to go so far with MOG because they're worried about the kind of cost and pain this might have on uh, the people of Myanmar. Um, A lot of people are still living in the country, while even though many have left. Um, But I think at this point, there's this sense that, you know, what could be, what could be worse than, than having to endure daily airstrikes Another consideration um, is that Myanmar supplies oil and energy to a neighbor, Thailand, um, and the U.S. has said that it has wanted to be quite careful um, in balancing relationships with with Thailand and not making it too painful for them because they need Thailand uh, to continue exerting other types of pressure on the junta as well as for other security uh, needs and concerns uh, in Southeast Asia. Mm. I mean, have many other countries taken punitive action against Myanmar? Yes, certainly. So the, the, the move today was done in concert with Canada and the UK, um, though those countries did not explicitly name MOG. Um, there are other countries that have sanctioned, the EU has sanctioned MOG before as well. Um, and so this is happening, you know, in concert with, with, with several other countries. Um, and it's certainly not the first time that the US has imposed sanctions as well. They're, they're outstanding san- sanctions on a range of individuals. Mm. Um, but again, you know, the argument is that given the scale of bloodshed that we've seen this year, it's not going far enough. 
I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the hostilities currently raging along Myanmar's northeastern frontier. That's the border with China. And I understand that, that there are uh, uh, there is a Chinese high-ranking official from China uh, who's, who has made a visit to Napador to discuss security. Right. So the hostilities that have exploded along the Chinese border, this has come as quite a surprise, actually. So um, it's being led by a group of ethnic armed organizations known as the Northern Alliance. Um, And while there have been other ethnic militias that have been very outspoken and very clear in their resistance to the junta since it uh, seized control, the Northern Alliance has not been as explicit on where they stand. They are, you know, widely recognized to, and, and, and known to be backed by China. Um, and it hasn't been clear politically where they stand. So this sudden offensive um, that took place, um, you know, starting last week where they coordinated attacks to seize, you know, what apparently has now become dozens of military positions, um, taken control over major highways as well as border controls. It was surprising even to, you know, the most seasoned conflict analysts studying Myanmar, um, and it has the potential to be you know, quite devastating for, for the military. Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. That's Rebecca Tan there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To the Arctic now, a region facing some of the most serious effects of global warming. Climate scientists warn that sea ice on the Earth's most northerly reaches is melting even faster than they expected, which could be catastrophic for global sea levels. But there is cause for optimism, says Dr Jan Gunnar Winter, director of the Norwegian Polar Institute, a government body responsible for monitoring the Arctic and Antarctic. At the 2023 Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Dr Winter told Monocle's Andrew Muller why he's staying positive. Well, lots is happening. Uh, in the private sector, there is uh, things happening, going away from the fossil fuel to the renewable. I think the speed of the whole uh, change, it's a systemic change we are talking about. Mm. I shouldn't use the word revolution, but it's mm. really a change. And it goes through societies from A to Z, from very low to, to the top. So, so we are standing against a huge challenge where every, let's say, compartment of our societal building needs to take part and also contribute. So so things are happening, but they are not happening at the pace that we need to avoid the worst consequences. So we have uh, several uh, huge initiatives. In northern Sweden, for example, it's uh, green steel uh, plants in Kiruna. We have something called green ammonia in Nordic, in northern Norway. We have battery factory plants. So I think in, in my vision for the Arctic, the Arctic is a workshop where we develop the highest standards for sustainability to the best for the region, uh, also creating jobs and, and value creation and so on, but also have a clear environmental impact. And these solutions, if you may, can also be exported to the rest of the world. So the Arctic can play a role as a, as a foreigner. I, I hope. That's my wish. I mean, are, are there things that could plausibly be done, do you think, to, to force that pace a little bit? Well, it needs to be taken political decisions, of course, and we know how complicated that is, although we make small steps ahead. I think one area of the climate uh, domain that has been, uh, let's say, less focused on is adaptation, because there are unavoidable 
climate change coming up, uh, even though we take strong action, and to prevent and save uh, societies from enormous costs like we have seen this year, mm. uh, adaptation and precautionary actions is, is part of the, the thing that we need to to ha tackle. It's not uh, taking away the root courses, so we have to work on the emission side, of course, but this balance, I think, is extremely important. And and UN and the World Bank has uh, made some calculations. It's uh, somewhere between five and seven times more costly to, to have a reactive than proactive action here. So. so if we throw it ahead finally, then maybe another 10 or 20 years, um, what strikes you as a plausible best case scenario from where we are now? To level off the temperature increase, uh, it's doable. We know that mm. strong action, yes, but it's doable. And further on, we actually may be able to take down the temperature. It could be carbon uh, capture and storage. It could be uh, going totally to renewable energy systems. Uh, and that will make the system, at least large part of the system, come back again. We know from climate models that you can build back the sea ice in, in the Arctic, for example, mm -hmm. if you lower the temperature, because the changes around two degrees Celsius are uh, huge. And that was Dr. Jan Gunnar Winter of the Norwegian Polar Institute speaking to Andrew Muller. Now, France is known as a nation of gastronomy, so it should be no surprise that some 800 residents of a village in Provence have signed a petition trying to stop a local restaurant becoming a McDonald's fast food outlet. However, a couple of new studies have shown that not everyone in the country has such refined palates, as the amount of fast food chain restaurants has increased from 13,000 to 52,000 in the last 20 years. While Marie Leconte is a French-Moroccan political journalist and author. Uh, welcome back to the show, Marie. You grew up in France. How do French people really feel about fast food? Oh, we absolutely love it. We love nothing more than a burger or a kebab. And I, I found it really funny moving abroad and people saying, oh, you know, you, you must have grown up on kind of fine cuisine even as a child. And I did not, to be clear, I absolutely did not. You know, as a teenager, all I wanted was a McDonald's like everyone else, I think, in the world. Like, it's not I think, yeah, French people have certainly changed or at least don't deserve the reputation we currently have, I think. Yeah. I mean, if junk food is booming, then that does that mean that French people who object to new outlets opening and we're told that this often happens must eventually relent? <laughs> because otherwise, who's keeping those places in business? Oh, absolutely. And, and I wonder, seeing that story, if it's a slightly perhaps generational thing in that, you know, I think people have kind of, you know, my grandparents, people of my grandparents' age probably... You know, I would say I'm, I'm not convinced my grandparents have ever had a burger or a kebab in their lives. Um, but, you know, kind of everyone below that has grown up with it. So, so I, I obviously I have no idea, but I wonder if the people who signed the petition were perhaps again on the kind of older side of things and... Uh, and yet, perhaps should be slightly ignored. I, I don't wish to be mean, but, you know, times change. <laughs> oh, and I wonder also if there's a difference between urban and rural communities. I mean, our rose-tinted view is that every little village has a fabulous bistro where we can get superb home cooking washed down with a glass of the local wine. I mean, is that just a tourist fantasy? Um, yes and no, because actually I will say that, again, you know, and then I did eat many burgers um, and kebabs in my youth. But also, you know, I spent a lot of my time drinking espressos in charming little cafes because uh, that's what you do at 14 in France. 
Um, so no, and, and I think again, I, I, I would personally argue that the, the way we work as a country is that we can we can have the best of both worlds. I think you can have the kind of like greasy, dubious meat at two a.m., but you can also have the really charming meal at lunch or at dinner. You know, as you said, a kind of like quaint little bistro and have like lots of little glasses of wine. Like we we can have both. We can have it all. I mean, I keep referring to France as a nation of gastronomes, but I, I wonder if if you feel that's really the case. How important is food to French culture? Actually, not really. And again, I mean, you, you mentioned in the intro that I am half Moroccan and actually it is quite funny. So my mother, who grew up in Morocco, was born and bred there, is always actually scandalised by how little French people care about food because she thinks that in Morocco there's much more of a kind of proper culture of proper food and proper cooking. Um, but no, but if you look, for example, so, you know, the, I would say the main food trend, I think, in the past decade in France is the ta- the French tacos, um, which uh, tacos, um, I believe, you know, if you really want to say it in the proper way, um, which is essentially a sort of, yeah, a sort of taco in, in, in you know, in kind of a like large piece of bread, but with kebab meat in it and also occasionally chili meat and cheese and et cetera. And every city, so my hometown, you know, is by no means an exception, but every city centre will now have about 17 different outlets serving that sort of thing. So I, I would say we, we certainly care about food, but we're not, I, I think, again, the kind of view that people have of us in other countries is not entirely correct. We, we like our junk food. We like a kind of, you know, food outlets, etc. And I wonder, I mean, you mentioned Morocco. I wonder how much multiculturalism and, and a large population from North Africa, from Morocco, from Algeria and various other places around the world has changed the food landscape. Oh, um, well, I, I think it's quite similar to other countries in the same way that, you know, I, I kind of moved to Britain and suddenly realised that I could eat a curry whenever I wanted, which was very new for me, like generally, and you know, and beautiful, great thing. So I think, yeah, we, we definitely have, I think, a kind of similar thing, although I'm not sure, because I think, again, there is still a, a kind of, you know, some strata of French society who want French food to kind of remain its own thing. There's not quite as much fusion, I suppose, as, as there is in Britain. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, no, no, we, we definitely see a lot of kind of North African uh, food, like both proper cuisine and kind of like more junkier uh, food in France, which is, which is nice. I think, you know, that, that should be um, celebrated. Mm. Uh, finally, Marie, I'm going to Paris for the weekend. Where and what should I eat? Oh, I regret to say that I think the only advice I could give in good faith is take the train down to Nantes. Um, and it was just only two hours and then you'll have a delightful time. No, I, I've never lived in Paris, I'm afraid. And I also don't really like it as a city, so I don't go very often. Right. Well, Sorry. Marie, you have a good weekend too. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That's Marie LeConte there and that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle and our researcher was Harrison Warlock. Our studio manager was Callum McLean. And The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.